Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Not only is this composer a recipient of the Thelonious Monk International Jazz Piano Competition and a Daytime Emmy Award, but he is also a prolific pianist who has recorded, performed, and collaborated with the likes of Kanye West, Jay-Z, and Q-Tip. He created the ominous tones of Ava DuVernay's When They See Us, and for Academy Award-winning film Green Book, he composed an incredible score while also taking on the role as Mahershala Ali's body double for close-ups of piano playing, and the composer is Chris Bowers. Thanks so much for being here. <laughs> yeah, thank you, man. Appreciate that. I want to ask you, you spent some time in New York, uh, but you grew up in L.A., right? Yes. Yeah, I grew up here in L.A. And I know your parents started you on piano lessons when you were four, but did you find L.A. to be a very musical city to grow up in? Man, to be honest, not really. I mean, I think that my parents did a really incredible job of finding, um, you know, spaces for me to either study or also like see music. Like they took me to the Jazz Bakery pretty frequently or to Catalina Bar and Grill um, and some of the other jazz clubs. But it, it it's interesting how how you know, then you move to a city like New York, like I did when I went to college, and it's, it's just a completely different thing. Like the music there is just um, so much more accessible. There's so many more venues and the musicians are just on a different level. I think here in LA, there were maybe a few places where, like the two places I mentioned, or even um, the Mint or Vibrato or some of those other places where you could see some of the great jazz musicians come through. But um, But other than that, like seeing live music in LA, especially at that time, was um was a bit more difficult. I guess on that too. So did you enjoy music? Or I don't know, did you see these people playing when you were a kid and then re- like want to be a musician immediately? Or was that something that came later? Yeah, it was pretty immediate. What was fascinating to me though is that like listening to film score music is what made me more excited about about being a musician. Just because like I was a pretty, I'm a, a pretty introverted person. I was a very introverted kid. And so like, I didn't really, the idea of being on stage and being able to perform for people was not the thing that got me excited about playing music. For me, it was more so the fact that I could express myself and like get to an emotion on the piano. And, and I think once I found, um, you know, there were certain jazz musicians that I could tell were doing that and the way they played uh, really evoked an emotion. And I think that did spark some excitement in me, but the the time that it really clicked was listening to film scores and seeing how much that stuff um, uh, moved me in a, in a very specific way. And what were some of those like film scores that instantly hit you? Yeah. I mean, like definitely ET and star Wars and, and Indiana Jones. I think those three were like kind of some of the big ones that I used to listen to pretty regularly. Um, also Lord of the Rings, like that score I used to listen to a lot. Um, the born identity score, uh, that John Powell score I used to listen to a lot. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of what James Newton Howard, I mean, there's like the Sixth Sense or um, 
the King Kong score. I think those scores were ones that I remember listening to on on repeat for a while. For sure. I think those are all the same for me growing up, but also like <laughs> yeah. Transformers. It's always the action movies, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think it's because like it gets you excited when you're listening to it. Yeah. I wonder if it's just like the genre of the film itself, like when your kids just action movies are way more cool and then the music just stays for there. Sure. But for sure. Who knows? Does that mean that you just started like writing immediately on piano as soon as you um, saw these movies and were just blown away by these scores and also the players too, who were incorporating emotion into their, their music? You know, it's, it's interesting. I never really thought about, and it's almost like I didn't put the two things together. It's like, I, like they almost existed in separate worlds. Like I loved playing piano and I loved um, improvising and that's why I love jazz and that improvisatory uh, you know, or having to improvise, I think also lended itself then to composition. And so I started composing when I was pretty young. Um, I can't remember when I wrote my first piece, but it was definitely like under 10. And that was mainly in my mind um, done in the jazz space. Like I wrote, the first thing I wrote was like some ragtime piano piece. And then I was in a jazz ensemble at Colburn School here in LA. And I used to... um write pieces for that ensemble. And then I went to high school and started writing for that. And so I never really wrote from a, like, I think in my mind, the music for film made me feel something, but I had no idea how to go about accomplishing that sound. And so I don't think it even was a thought for me to um, try to even write any of that stuff. It wasn't, it was just like, I want to do that. I don't know how, but I want to do that. And I'm just going to keep writing and playing jazz piano and figure out how to get there eventually. And so, um, yeah, it was actually more jazz that I was composing, even though the thing that was moving me more was, was film score. So then I guess at that point you, you decided to go to school for music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my, um, I guess at that point I really didn't have a choice. I mean, once I went to my arts high school, um, Loxa, I wanted to go for visual arts and I got in for piano and my plan was to switch to visual arts after my freshman year because I wanted to be a cartoonist. Like my, my real dream at that point was, was, um, doing like computer animation. And so, um, then when I got to my high school and finished that first year, I think just being at that school, being around kids that were like just as serious about jazz and music and, and, and that was when I really got to fall in love with jazz, like myself. I think up until that point, piano and jazz were really a means to like impress other people. The fact that I could play piano at, at somebody's house or play a concert or all that kind of stuff, it didn't really, there was something about it that I could feel was like this expression, but I hadn't really learned enough to feel free with that expression. And so it wasn't until I got to high school that I started to really dig into the jazz vocabulary or just like, you know, theory on a, on a deeper level and be able to improvise over different chord changes. And so by that point, I really fell in love with it. And there was nothing else that I planned on doing. Like I, my parents used to tell me they wanted me to go to a school like USC so that I could get both a music education, but also a, a traditional education and I was like, absolutely not. Like the only reason why I applied to USC was because my parents made me, I mean, had I known about the film scoring program back then, maybe I would have actually considered something different. But, but for me, I was like, I, it, it's interesting that my high school experience made me this like jazz, um, 
like purist where I felt like I didn't want to do anything else. I knew I wanted to go to New York or at least as close to New York as possible if it was Boston or wherever else. And, um, and I just wanted to be a player and like play in bands and all that kind of stuff. And so the idea of doing anything else or even having any other job just never even entered my mind. My parents used to tell me that, um, I should have a plan B. And I think that I used to read a lot of entrepreneur books and all these other things when I was a kid. And so for me, I was like, there's no reason to have a plan. If I have a plan B, if you have something to fall back on, you're going to fall back on it in my mind. So I was like, there's nothing else that I can do other than try to give this my all and and see how it goes. Yeah, that's an interesting point about the plan B, because I feel like if you're forced into only one path, of course, you're going to do everything you can, like, even if it's just a mental thing for yourself, right? it'll push you. But I've also seen it go the the wrong way, but it's funny you know, talking to other composers, like one who maxed out four credit cards to buy a studio here <sighs> and was basically about to move back home and then got offered this giant TV scoring gig. It's wow. incredible. Oh, man. Yeah, it's a weird thing. And it's like so, so um, inexplicable and in like how many stories there are like that where somebody was like really on their last leg. And that's when the opportunity came. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say whether or not the opportunity would have come had they not, you know, really pushed themselves that much. Right. Do you feel like there was a moment in your life where you were at your last leg? I mean, fortunately, to be honest, not really. I think that I've, I've been very fortunate where, um, somehow things just keep happening. And I think that like a lot of that comes from, the way my parents raised me, like my parents raised me in this way that I had to uh, really have a plan for what I was going to do. Like my freshman year of high school, they were already asking me about college and where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do and what I was going to major in. And by the time I was graduating high school, they were already talking to me about what I was going to do when I finished college. Like I hadn't even started college yet. We're already talking about what my plan is. And because of that, I think I've always just been looking years ahead. Like even right now, this year, I feel really excited and thankful and appreciative of the work I have. And and I'm going to work really hard to um, get through it all. But I'm already thinking of what is next year going to look like? Like, what do I want that to look like? Do I want to take some more time off? Do I feel like I can take time off? And so, um, yeah, somehow, fortunately, it's it's all the universe has been very kind to me and things have kind of lined up in a way where I've 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 felt like I've, I was getting close to that. Like I remember finishing, um, college undergrad. I went to, went back for my master's and maybe that was like one point I wasn't really at a last legs. I think that I've always known that I, my, my parents were going to support me and, and, um, I wasn't going to be like, uh, homeless or anything like that. But I definitely remember knowing that I didn't have anything steady lined up and I didn't know how I was, I was going to make money. And I felt like part of my reason for going back to school, in addition to my parents wanting me to do that, um, and it being a good idea just to have a master's, um, I didn't really go back to school because I wanted to. I went back to school more so because I knew that was going to be a safe space to continue to try to find work. Um, and uh, and I wasn't ready yet, you know. And so I think that was kind of the one point where I even thought about whether or not I should try to go to bartending school or you know, do something else to like see how I could find money otherwise. But, um, but, but yeah, I just went back to school and tried to stick it out. Gotcha. Yeah. And I mean, on that note, it seems like you have a really, really strong worth ethic and 
I mean, I think you told me on Green Book you practiced eight hours a day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I guess having the goal in mind kind of creates your schedule of what you need to do to to get there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of one of these things where it's like I know what I need to do to get to a certain point, and like, you know, I when I was practicing for Green Book, there would be times where I would just walk by my piano. And I'd be like, okay, I have to sit down and just play that one part really quickly. And that would lead to like an hour of playing piano just because wow. I'd be like, you know, it's, it's, it's that whole thing where you play it once and it's like, okay, that was pretty good. Let me try it again. You play it again and it's worse. And it's like, okay, let me play it again. You play it again. And it's great. It's like, let me try to repeat that and play it again. And it's a little bit worse. It's like trying to continue to get that consistency. And, um, and yeah, like you said, when you have that goal in mind of what you need to achieve, it's easier to kind of just keep pushing until you hit it. Yeah. And it seems like you developed that very early on. I assume before Juilliard and before college at all. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, um, High school and also just my my parents. My dad was like, he sat behind me every day that I practiced from the time I was like four until 15. And we got into this like fight when I was in high school about it. But, um, you know, for them, it was like I used to in the summertime, I used to ask them if I can go out and play. And their response to that would be like, did you practice piano today? Did you did you do anything like work wise? And it just kind of ingrained in my mind this idea of. I need to make sure that I take care of this before I go like treat myself to anything else. And, and at first, you know, that, that felt just like a, um, like a parent telling me what to do and giving me this, this task. But I think once I fell in love with piano, then nobody had to tell me to do that. Then it was mm -hmm. like, I knew that for me, this was important for me to take care of before I did anything else. Right. That's amazing. So you go to Juilliard and then you're in New York, you're, you're playing a bunch, um, I mean, the other th part is you're just so, we're, I mean, this is coming from a 24 year old, but you're so young, dude, and you're, you're killing it. Um, but I mean, I, I'm immediately blown away by just the fact that you played on Jay-Z and Kanye's collaborative album, Walk the Throne. Um, I think you've, you've talked about how you got into that room with via Q-Tip. Is that what led you to playing in Marcus Miller's band for, it was one year? Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, just over... Just about a year. We did a couple of other shows after that, like here and there. But it basically, um, he actually called me because of the Monk competition. Gotcha. And that makes more sense then. Yeah, because he was looking for a new piano player and um, he asked his record label. And it's the same record label that I got to deal with because of the Monk competition. And they were like, well, Chris just won the Monk competition. And so he called me in for a session for his album and I did that first. And then he asked me if I wanted to go on tour. And yeah, it was incredible. We we toured for a year. And what was interesting is that I decided to leave the band to to go tour with um, this other singer named Jose James that was a friend of mine and that I toured with for a few years. Um, and it was really just because I, I knew I wanted to put my own album out and I knew I wanted to have a fan base that was closer to Jose James's fan base than to... Um, Marcus is possibly, but I think that the the other thing that was really um, unfortunate is at the end of my touring with Marcus, we got into this huge bus accident. We got into this bus accident um, in November of that year, and like the driver passed away. Like we had to, we were in the middle of Switzerland. They had to like helicopter people to hospitals. Like there are people that um, uh, the drummer kind of like fractured his back. Marcus had only like broken his foot and I just had like bruises and cuts and things like that. And people had concussions and it was a very 
traumatic experience. And unfortunately, that was like the last time I went on tour with him. And I've I've done shows with him even here in LA since then. Um, but yeah, but that was the last time we were we were out on the road. Jeez. Yeah. Has that affected just like the thought about touring at all? Like I'm, I'm sure it takes a mental toll every time you you go out to go play a show. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one, I I honestly haven't been back on a bus since then. Like we were touring on the kind of buses where you're in a bunk and and um just that feeling of of like when it happened, I definitely thought that we were about to die because it felt like we we were before luckily we the accident happened in the middle of this huge freeway and it might've happened because of the driver and he just lost control of the bus, but we had just driven through the mountains. And so when it happened, I thought we were like falling down the side of a mountain or something. And, you know, just that feeling of, of being in a, in a confined space and not really having control is, is a uh, pretty scary. And so after that, I, I was like, I don't really know if I ever want to be on a bus again. Like, I don't think I'll be able to sleep on, on in a bunk on a bus after that um and yeah it definitely kind of like was the the thing that uh, well actually no because I still toured for another like three years after that so I was still touring for a little while but it definitely cemented in my mind the idea that this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life like I think that I had already when I when I was in college and my parents were telling me what are you going to do what's your plan all of that kind of stuff my plan at that time was I'm going to go on tour with this artist for maybe five to 10 years. And then after that, I'll put out my own album and tour for another like five or 10 years. And then I'll get into film scoring. And I think my first like four years of touring, having that bus accident and then just the, the, the fatigue from being on the road the whole time, I was like, yeah, this is not for me. I'm not, I'm not built for this. I'd rather just be home. I'd rather stay up late and and be in my own house than, than some random city somewhere else. Gotcha. And yeah, I guess it's that is one of the nice things about being a film composer. As much as we like to complain about deadlines and the like, is that <laughs> you're still yeah, like, nice relatively to close to home. Yeah. Had you done any uh, films in school, or was it pretty fresh, just like coming out of these touring days into scoring your? I know you did a. I think what was said is like your first film later, but yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. I started scoring while I was still on tour and. I I hadn't scored anything in college at all. I there, I did one friend's short film, I think my senior year of college, and I didn't even end up scoring it. We decided to have no music in the whole short film and just like an end credits thing. <laughs> um but um but that was my first kind of experience trying to score something and then also when I was at Juilliard there was one class um that was like a scoring the picture class and we mostly wrote to commercials. Like we wrote to like these old commercials from like the eighties and nineties. And so that was, that was the extent of my scoring experience. And then it wasn't until I won the month competition that this woman that was my manager for a short while uh, named Tracy Jordan, she recommended me for this documentary I did about Elaine Stritch. And so I did that documentary and another documentary for, for that same director um, uh, about the same time in 2011 and I just started touring and I was still finishing up my master's at that point. And then, um, and then I didn't do anything for a couple of years until I scored this documentary about Kobe Bryant. And that led to a number of things. And the next, I think I did maybe two or three other documentaries for that same director. And all of those I did while I was on tour. Like I did, um, I was 
doing shows and then going back to the hotel room and writing all night and then getting on the bus and then going back on tour. Like it was a pretty, pretty grueling couple of years trying to do both of those things. Right. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, and then I guess from that, that's how you got into the Sundance Film Composer Lab in 2016? Yeah, exactly. I used my the music I wrote for the Kobe documentary, which I think came out in either 2014 or 15. And that was the music that I submitted for the the labs uh, in 2016. Yeah. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, it was pretty life-changing. I think that for me personally, again, coming from this space where I knew I wanted to, I had this dream of being a film composer, but I didn't know how to get there or how to achieve it really. And I was kind of finding a way, but even still like having done, um, at, at that point before I did the labs in my mind, I was like, oh, I'll just be the composer that, that um, you know, is a jazz pianist and plays shows and then just has like a couple of documentaries or indie films here and there. And I was like, I'll stay in New York and that'll be my life. Um, and doing the labs, I think just showed me up and close, up close and personal, the dream that I had, like here is Harry, Harry Gregson Williams right in front of me talking to me about like a cue and like, I'm recording at Skywalker ranch and all these things that felt like this is what I've been dreaming about since I was a kid. And it felt so much more, tangible and real and on top of that to to have my music played for these people that I've been a fan of for most of my life and have them give me positive feedback um and also to be around my peers it, it's just for the first time I was like I mean before then I didn't know any other film composers so I didn't know like like how my music was compared to other film composers my age or or um whether or not I was doing the right thing when it comes to a lot of the technical aspects or like the sound I was getting, I just kind of taught myself. And so I think that that experience, in addition to just how overwhelmingly beautiful like Skywalker Ranch is and just how familial the Sundance community is and how much it feels like this really um, beautiful family like camp essentially for those two weeks. I think the, the, the biggest thing for me was I left that and felt like, okay, I really want to try to do this. Like I want to go to LA. Like I, this is, I would, um, I would be upset with myself if I didn't try hard to achieve like what my childhood dream of doing this was, as opposed to, um, you know, this, this compromise that I felt like I was going toward at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds like a incredible experience. And I'm sure just, Again, as you mentioned, having peers who who are doing what you want to do and you're all kind of achieving or trying to get to the same goal is a beautiful thing. Yeah, definitely. And like we're all still very close and um and yeah, it's 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 and that that it's kind of the same experience I had when I was in high school, like going to that high school and seeing these people that were my age that were serious about being a, a musician and playing and seeing them interact and wanting to bring myself to that same level. I think that it was the exact same thing just in film scoring and, and as a young adult. Mm -hmm. So I just have a couple of questions left here for you now, but uh, one that I was very interested in is I know we've talked about the music for when they see us and, you you wanted to approach that almost as a horror score. Mm. And as we mentioned on Green Book too, you practiced eight hours a day. And it seems like you're a composer who has this incredible pre-production process to the the scoring where <laughs> you you try to think about what it is you want to get done before you even start. Because I mean, we're thrown in a lot of the times at the last minute in the post-production sure. process. 
Have you always done that? Have you always started before you even touched a note or tried to figure out the melody to come up with the soundscape or was that something that came later? You know, it's something I've always done, but I think that it, um, it came from two things. One, the, that experience working on the Kobe documentary was also very, uh, life-changing for me because of two reasons. One, the producer that got me into it was a friend of mine. His name is Jake Block. And he, we were friends in in a high school jazz band uh, during the summers together. And we hadn't seen each other actually since then. And he came up to me at a show of mine and was like, do you want to score this documentary about Kobe Bryant? And um, the thing that he did with me that was really beautiful was like, I think that my whole approach to film scoring came from that experience. Like we would get together and talk about themes and talk about like how to establish like a, a sonic palette for, for the whole film and, and what we were trying to go for. And, um, you know, it really started me on this process of wanting to make sure that I was, um, being very specific and intentional about every cue that I was writing or every, every, um, every sound that I was making. And also Kobe similarly would, oh, every cue that I would send him, he would ask me for like a, a dissertation essentially about what this is supposed to feel like, like why did I choose this instrument over this instrument? Like, and having to articulate myself in that way and tell somebody this is what I'm trying to do and also get excited about that, like get excited about the process, I think is what then made it feel to me like this is just how it's supposed to happen. Like it didn't feel like anything else made sense. So I think it was a combination of that. And um, again, being a jazz pianist, because for me, whenever I'm playing or whenever I take a solo, the first thing that I do, especially in moments where I feel like I play my best, is kind of like quiet my mind and think like, what am I trying to say right now? Like, what do I want to feel right now? And playing from that place gets me a different uh, a different result than playing from a place of either autopilot or oh, this cool thing I just learned, let me try to figure out how to do that. Like, you know, sometimes I do that just for for practice reasons, but it's never really the most musical experience. The, the times that it feels like I'm incredibly present and I'm almost not even doing anything, I'm just like receiving like something and just kind of like expressing myself. Those are the times that I'm just focusing on my emotion and how I feel and what I'm trying to express. And so I think similarly it's helped me with scoring where anytime I'm writing something and I'm just basing it on the temp or, or I'm trying to write it quickly, I never really, it all, it never feels like completely grounded to me. Like there are times where I'll still write a good cue or like somebody might hear it and be like, yeah, that's great. Or they might be moved by it. But the times that I'm moved by it are the times that I'm able to, like you said, take that time beforehand and decide, okay, what am I trying to say? How am I trying to say it? What? Because at that point, then I'm, I'm, creating a, once I really decide what it is I'm trying to get after and what that goal is, then I know whether or not I'm hitting it. Then like when I create a sound, I know that, okay, that's not making me feel that way. So obviously that's not right. And it kind of leads me a bit better to try to find the sound that I'm looking for. Hmm. Yeah. The intentionality is an interesting aspect. Yeah. Cause yeah, for sure. At that point it's either right or wrong, but at least you, you gave it your all. Yeah, exactly. So it's such a funny thing. It's all subjective, but at the same time, like there is something like inexplicably objective about like 
you know, we've all had that experience where you write a cue and the director says that it's not really the right emotion and then you make the change and then it hits the right emotion for that director. But even we as composers are like, yeah, that actually made more sense or that felt a little bit better. You know, like it's weird how there's no rules to this, but at the same time we can like kind of feel when something's right or when it's not right. Right. Yeah. And then one question here from a friend um, who wrote in was asking about representation among film composers and they want to ask your thought about if there are more lanes for people of more diverse backgrounds to get into the industry these days. Um, and they mentioned that they feel like there aren't that many black composers they see on in interviews and the press um, and that there is more of a lane now with, I mean, Terrence Blanchard getting a lot more, I don't know, press in the news and Michael Abel's killing it. And you're leading the way too for a bunch of other more diverse voices to come into the industry. Um, but what are your thoughts on how the composer community, how the entertainment industry as a whole can get more unique voices into the the field of composing for film and TV? Yeah, I think it's about us like creating a network. I mean, I think that's why the Composers Diversity Collective is so exciting and important because it reminds us that we're we're all out out here. You know, I think that we are seeing a couple of um, people that are getting a bit more attention, like uh, like you said, Terrence, even though it's wild that Terrence is just now getting attention and he's been sure. doing this for years and been like making amazing music for years. And then uh, Michael Abels as well. Um, and uh, Jermaine Stegall just did the last or the latest, uh, or he's working on the latest Coming to America. And so I think that, you know, you have these composers that are um, starting to get work in a bigger space. Um, Amanda Jones is another one. She just is like killing the TV space right now and has like a few shows. And, um, and for me, I think having the composers diversity collective or having this group of people also just makes us feel like we, we know we're not alone and we can also like continue to try to champion each other because, you know, any project that I can't do, I'm going to think of like a friend first. And if I can think of a friend that also is a person of color, then I'm probably going to think that way first as well, because I just want to see more people in those spaces get opportunities. And knowing that there is a pool of people that I know I can reference, like, you know, I think maybe just a few years ago, if somebody asked me for, um, a recommendation, I wouldn't be able to do that. Or I'd be able to give a recommendation based on somebody I met in, in the, in the film space. And, and unfortunately most people I had met at that point weren't people of color. And I think that now being able to, like, there's been a few times where I've been able to say like, here's a list of like Latinx composers. Here's a list of black composers. Here's a list of Asian composers that I think you guys need to reach out to for this project. And, and the more that we, do that and make that the the point, the more that I think that it's going to normalize, you know, especially because like people still unfortunately have um, implicit biases and like prejudices they're not even aware of. Like I had a conversation on a film that I wasn't able to do. And it was a film about this, um, this Mexican uh, man that was coming to America to find his father who left him and his family when, when they were kids and the director um, talked about how he 
like the kind of score he wanted. And I suggested that he hire a Latinx composer just because that would that would um, bring a level of authenticity to the score. And his response was, yeah, but I don't really want like, you know, like a Mexican sounding score. And I was like, well, first of all, that feels like kind of offensive if you're making a film about a Mexican uh, character. But the other thing is that to to assume that that's all that a, a Latinx composer or a Mexican composer can do is the problem. Like, that's the problem. Like, we need to realize that we are all just creatives. And yes, there's a there's an experience that creates a lens that we're creating that music through. And so are there going to be elements that maybe feel culturally specific? Sure. But I think that's also a good thing when you're making content that needs that. And also every now and then, like, you know, when we listen to the music that is popular in the world, like it's all influenced by everything else. I mean, even if we go far back, like Elvis was influenced by the blues, the Led Zeppelin and the Beatles were influenced by the blues. Like if we, if, if we look at um, like all the pop music that's made now, it's definitely still influenced by trap and hip hop and R and B and electronic and all these other things. And so, you know, to, to have this myopic idea that, composers of color need to stick to a sound that they are assumed to be comfortable within and can't do anything else outside of that is the thing that still needs to be broken. And I think that's happening with the type of work that, you know, a lot of the composers I mentioned and including myself are getting right now. And that's why it's really exciting because I think that, you know, people are starting to realize that. And so the more we can just like flood them with, with incredibly talented composers of color and show people that, that, they can do anything that you ask them to, the more that that's going to be normalized. And I think we're in a time where people are open to that. Right. I completely agree with all that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, we just have one last segment here. We've made it. It's called tech talk. Uh, it's a segment <laughs> where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. It could be one right. word, a whole story. Here we go. So the first one is DAW. Uh, yeah, right now I use logic. I've been using logic since I was a, a teenager. So that's really the only reason why I use it. And, uh, I've tried teaching myself other ones and I always like just that I need, I need at least a few months to be able to really learn. Cause I start and I just get frustrated and go back to logic. Sure. And then we got pianos. Um, one, I, I feel, um, like I need to play a lot more these days just because as a composer you don't really get time to to really play or practice i think that's why green book was such an incredible experience because it forced me to practice um and i haven't really been practicing that way since then so um but and the other thing too is that it's it gives a different um feeling like you know i've, I've found that if i'm trying to write something on my daw or on the uh, midi controller like i was saying before trying to get to a certain feeling it's a bit difficult to do that on a MIDI controller and I do it on the piano and it's so much easier to find an emotion and get there. And I think it's just because of the vibration and the wood and all of that. Yeah. Cool. Analog synth. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I, analog synths can also get an emotion uh, pretty quickly as well. I think they're, it's similar thing where it's not the same when you're on a MIDI controller, even though they're getting incredibly close with like the sound quality and making things sound similar. Um, there's something about being able to like mess with knobs and like be able to be very, um, it's such a tactile experience that I think being able to play an analog synth is great. And the warmth you get from those sounds is, is like nothing else. And so I've been, I didn't really get into analog synths until maybe about 
like six or six or seven years ago, and I feel like um, uh, now I'm I'm just like a, a junkie. Right. There's something about that physical aspect too that's similar to just playing a piano in the sense moving a knob feels just yeah. faster. Uh, for sure. And for then sure. last one is just harmony. Uh, yeah, I feel like um, something I've been finding lately that's interesting is how it, it's, I've, I've been trying to extend my ears a bit more and like find just more complex and denser and like more interesting harmonies or unexpected things. I mean, it's pretty fascinating that like that there are times where progressions um, feel like they're there. It feels impossible to invent a new progression because like anytime I try to go to an unexpected chord my ear is like that doesn't feel right it feels right to go to the chord that is expected and so trying to find a way to to make it a bit different uh has been fun but um but the other thing that i I was saying earlier about more complex harmonies is there are times where i'll hear like a john williams score or like jerry goldsmith and like hear some harmony that feels a bit um out for lack of a better term and and it's weird how 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 uh again like slightly objective that is even though it's not like the similarity is is in jazz where you can hear somebody play out where they're like playing outside of the changes and it sounds wrong and then you hear people that are playing out and and it feels right and it's kind of hard to explain like sometimes you find that Oh, they're approaching the diminished or like they're approaching the the tritone substitute here. Like there's sometimes where it's very clear in terms of how you can explain why it's still quote unquote right or technically works. And then there are times where you have no explanation for that. Like there's times where Wayne Shorter or like Ornette Coleman are playing something. You're like, I have no idea why that works, but it somehow works. And unless you like find the secret sauce to how they made that work you can try it and it's going to sound like a mistake or sound wrong and it's kind of the same thing with like these harmonies that some composers get to sometimes where they have like a cluster chord and then i try to replicate that and i'm like that doesn't everything i do doesn't sound as good as what they did unless i like really get what they did and then try to you know reverse engineer it then i can maybe find something that that can work but it's uh it's a really fascinating thing just how how um uh dissonance can can still sound right for sure and a lot of that i guess is context too if it's to picture i think there's sure. something right there for sure like the most totally. disgusting chord can work over the right image <laughs> yeah that's totally true yeah totally well cool chris thank you so much for being here and do you want to tell the people what you've got going on what you're excited for yeah so right now i'm working on um uh, I'm finishing up Mrs. America. It's a TV show that comes out next or this month in like two weeks um, with Kate Blanchett and um, Uzo Aduba and Rose Byrne. It's on uh, FX and Hulu. And then um, uh, Space Jam too. I'm working on that as well. And that'll be, uh, I mean, next year, but that's something I'm really excited about as well. It must be so exciting as the I don't know, aspiring cartoonist in you. <laughs> exactly. It's like, finally, I'm getting a chance to like at least work tangentially on a project that, uh, that, that has that. Yeah. Has that been incredibly challenging? I assume like all those orchestrations are just so complicated yeah, and complex. Yeah. It's for the first time I'm like 
you know, I, I remember hearing that that thing. I forget where I heard it from, but somebody said that John Williams only writes two minutes of music a day. And, you know, working in the TV and film space, you're used to having to crank out like 10 to 15 minutes of music a day, which is just like a ridiculous amount. And now trying to write like Looney Tune type music or this music that's very, very opulent and involves. Not only do I understand why John Williams is only writing two minutes of music a day, I'm also like, I can only write like 45 seconds a day of that kind of music at this point. Like I need to really work on, luckily I still have the time, but, but um, yeah, it's definitely showing me how, how um, it's, it's a fun process because like, you know, it's like anything else that takes time where you, you, you started and it feels like so daunting and throughout the whole process, you're not sure how it is. And, and then you finally have something to show for it at the end of the day. And, and it shows me how, um, you know, how these incredibly complex things that I've listened to and I'm like, how did this person do that? It's like, Oh, I understand. It just took a lot of time, you know? And so now figuring out that I just need to find the time to do that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, pretty like therapeutic and um and like meditative process to like just focus on the the small details and take your time with it gotcha cool well thanks again for being on chris thanks for listening to this episode of composer talk if you like what we're doing feel free to follow us on instagram or facebook The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.